The Christian Atheist is also available on YouTube, and you will find other great content, including the literature I frequently refer to, on our Simple Gifts podcast. If you find our content helpful, consider supporting us through PayPal at RomansChapter5 at Comcast.net. Welcome to No Compromise, where faith and reason fuse in conversation. So, my love, another week, yep. and this week we're going to do something different. Right. It was supposedly different until you got involved. <laughs> <laughs> I said last week that I'm tired of all the heavy stuff that's going on in, in the world right now and in the news. And so I said, let's read something extremely light. Um, something good, but extremely light. So I said, why don't we go back to reading the Chronicles of Narnia and start and, and read them in chronological order. I don't a know if that's for both of us, for sure. Right. And half of the Narnia fans are like, ee, cringing. And the other half are like, yay. Cause you have, <laughs> because, because half the fans are like, you can only read them in order that they were written. And the other half are like, you have to read them in chronological order. Oh, so there's, there's a debate yes. going on about that. Yes. And we know which way you fall because you wanted to read The Magician's Nephew first. Right. Exactly. Okay. I'm a chron chronological fan. Okay. So um, I said, let's read this and, and and this should be something enjoyable and light. Right. And John Wise, Dr. Wise, turns it into something heavy. Well, you know heavy what? Heavy and, wait, wait, the double H's. Heavy and Hegelian. <laughs> <laughs> so as true to form. Dr. John Wise found Hegel within <laughs> the magician's nephew. He finds Hegel behind Everywhere. every cat stuck up in a tree. <laughs> in fact, he found... New um, to me to ruin every light moment. He found representations of the Hegelian Marx tradition within the magician's nephew. I say that, I I say that as a, Yeah, I say that as a joke, but you're right. You're exactly right. And I agree with you. I always have to tease you about that stuff. Though. Yes. <laughs> so in reading The Magician's Nephew, we found lots of very incisive moments. There is a lot to be learned and a lot that reflects our current world if we look carefully at what's happening in The Magician's Nephew. Exactly. So maybe you should start very briefly. And I know that's that's an extremely difficult word for you. <laughs> Brief. But very briefly explain The Magician's Nephew, well, or at least the introduction. It's sort of like the creation story in Genesis yeah. that um, presents God creating the world. Except it's oh, the creation of Narnia. Right. So the, it actually gives us the creation story for Narnia. Mm -hmm. And it's from the point of view of our people from our world right. who stumbled into Narnia. The, the two main characters are Diggory mm -hmm. and Polly. And their children. And they meet one another one summer in London. Right. Now, Diggory is living with his aunt and uncle, and his mother is very sick, probably dying. Right. And his father is away. Right. I think in India or yeah. something like and that. And when he meets Polly, he's he's blubbing. <laughs> blubbing. <laughs> crying. Yes. Right. And um, they they decide they want to they want to go on an adventure together, right. a, a diversion from from what's going on in their lives. Right. So they begin exploring their attic between right. the two of them. And they realize that the attic sort of goes between the entire row. I guess it's a series of row houses. Right. That the attic sort of connects them all, right. and that they can get into the different houses through if, the attic. Yeah, if the doors are unlocked. Right. And. 
And so they decide to go on an adventure with each other and they want to get into the very last of their row mm-hmm. in which uh, there's no one living, apparently. Yeah. And they make a mistake. And the first chapter is called The Wrong Door. Okay. Why don't you start by reading some of the conversation that Diggory has with his uncle Andrew? Because that's that's the key to this chapter. Yep. So chapter one ends mm-hmm. with Uncle Andrew tricking Polly into touching a yellow ring and disappearing suddenly without warning. Okay, so now we get to chapter two. <laughs> and you have a lot to say in chapter two. And I'm going to have to try to restrain you. <laughs> Yeah, the problem is with chapter two is you want to start professoring. That's what I always want to do. Right. So we have to not professor and we need to discuss. Okay. So let's try to stay on track. Okay. Okay, so Diggory just saw his 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 little friend disappear. He knows Uncle Andrew did this on purpose. Right. And he's horrified. So Uncle Andrew is a magician. How does that relate to our world? Ah. Because magicians transcend nature. They try to violate the laws of nature to achieve some result that they're looking for. Right. This is typical. I mean, this is this is ends justify the means right. thinking. Right. I can do whatever I need to do in order to achieve the end that I desire. That's what a magician represents. And Uncle Andrew's sort of like a scientist. Right, because he's he's performing an experiment. He thinks of himself as a scientist, right. much as Marx thought of himself as a scientist. Correct. When in effect, what they are is magicians. Right. They're trying to violate the laws of the laws of nature in order to achieve an end that nature won't, by natural logic, deliver to them. Right. So he is performing an experiment. Mm-hmm. Um, and he used Polly as the guinea pig. Right. Literally. Literally. Because before he did have a guinea pig yes. he used, and the guinea pig, several of them died, right? Right. Well, the, several of them <laughs> died, and then the one that he sent actually ended up in the wood between the worlds. Right. Alive, well, we find that but out he later. can never he get that one back right. because it's just a guinea pig. Right. So he needs people. Right. People that he can use. Exactly. And again, it's the ends justify the means, and the people are just means for Uncle Andrew. He can use them for whatever he wants to to get where he wants because he is smarter than everybody else. And that justifies his experiments. And that brings us to uh, something that he says. He says, well, says Uncle Andrew with a chuckle after Diggory calls him out on it. Yes. um, It depends what you call wrong. People are so narrow minded. Right. So all of the traditional notions of wrong are things that magicians may ignore at will right? because they're superior people. Okay. So you said he can, they can get rid of the traditions. Right. right? And he received the rings from his godmother. Right. Well, actually, he, he made it from um, the oh, dust that yeah, she he left received to him. It. Yeah, that's right. He received the dust that she left to him, and then and he created these rings, right, through a whole lot of uh, and of she was also research, right, and she was also a magician, right. Okay, um, and she, and as a magician, she was always nice to him, right, <laughs> right, which is what which is what we hear all over the world today, or excuse me, all over our culture today, right. right? We're supposed to be nice to certain people, right. But not to everybody else. But what was the point? The point was that she was kind of odd 
Diggory knew that she was kind of odd. Everybody mm-hmm. knew she was kind of odd and weird. Yes, and not um, very nice. Right, and not nice. But Andrew said, but she was nice to me. Right, she was nice to me. She was nice in the right way, which is, again, what we see so much in today's world. Right. Right, right. be nice be nice to the trans person who is taking, who, who is competing against women, the trans man or the mm-hmm. trans woman. I always get confused of which is which and winning the contests from all the women. Right. So who's that being nice to? Right. Is it really being nice? Um, And I remember that Uncle Andrew had made a promise to his godmother that he would destroy the box of dust. Right. And, and Uncle Andrew says to Diggory, that promise... I did not keep. Right. And how did Diggory respond? And Diggory responded with, well, that was jolly rotten of you. Right. With the traditional moral. Right. With the traditional moral stance. If you've right. committed yourself to something, right. then you should stand behind it. So at this point in the story, <clears throat> you see the two, the, the conflicting right. moral views. Tradition versus progressivism. Exactly. Yep. Very point. much so. Yeah. And the progressives feel as though they're free to ignore traditional moral values in an ends justify the the means thinking. Right, because Andrew has a puzzled look on his face. Yeah, he's even like, what, like what do confused, you mean? He's like, rotten? Rotten? Why would yeah, I why be rotten? Why would that be rotten? And it's like, the rules are for other people who don't know any better. Right. We know better. Right. And if, if, you, if you guys have ever listened to James Lindsay, he's got a great piece on this in the New Discourses podcast that's called Socialists Know Better or Marxists Know Better or something like that. <laughs> exactly. And even for a second, Diggory thinks to himself that Uncle Andrew, what he's saying is is rather fine. Right. Yeah. It's like he's he's almost seduced by Uncle Andrew's, both his emotional tone uh-huh. and his seeming moral superiority uh-huh. um, and the seductiveness of his argument. And this exactly. is this is Hegelianism in our world to a right. T. That's what's going we on We are right so now. easily seduced because... The position is very powerfully argued, very rationally presented, and it's hard to it's hard to beat it. Right. But what does beat it? When he, Diggory remembers, he remembers. He remembers his the, ugly face, the ugliness of his face. Right. He gets. He's reminded it's not, of the reality of his situation. Right. And it's it's not that his face is ugly. It's that he has this ugly look on his face. Right. Especially he sees him for what he is. Especially when he when he when Diggory re- realizes that Uncle Andrew just sent Polly there as an experiment, right, and didn't care about her life, right. nothing. In other words, Diggory sees through the, tra- the lens of traditional values right. exactly the failure of Uncle Andrew's values, and he comes to the conclusion that all it means is that Uncle Andrew can do anything he likes in order to get what he wants. Right. Yep. Which- Ends. Right. And justify the means thinking. Right. Which is typical of the left and our, our entire culture these days. So any other things you can you'd like to say about this chapter? I know this is a <laughs> you're you're really restraining yourself. You had a <laughs> lot you wanted to say about this chapter, but we we don't have much time because we have fourteen chapters in this book. Yes. So I'd I like guess to go through. I guess I'm willing to let it go. What was the very last thing that happened in the chapter? He convinces Diggory to go in and... Oh, right. And to, Diggory, he, if Uncle he Andrew to, makes it clear to Diggory you know. that he's going to be 
violating his moral his morality if he doesn't go after Polly right. and bring her back from where Uncle Andrew has sent her. Right. Because he knows that Diggory has he knows a, that a strong Diggory moral has compass. the moral compass. Mm-hmm. And he uses that moral compass right. to get Diggory to do what he wants. Right. And boy, I'll tell you what is that emblematic yes. of our culture today. Exactly. Because the left does not care about being nice. Right. But it uses niceness to convince us to go the way they want us to go. The left does not care about race. It does not care about abortion or gender. It does not care about the environment. It cares about achieving its results. And all of those things are merely means to the results that they are seeking. They don't value those things. So then we can move on to chapter three. And chapter three is the wood between the world. Ah, Yes. And do you want to briefly... Briefly. Briefly. Yes. Okay. So the wood between the the worlds in the book is actually where both Diggory and Polly end up when they touch the yellow rings. And it's a place of quietness and richness, but forgetfulness as well. And sleepiness. And sleepiness. And nothing, as Lewis describes it, ever really happens there. Right. Dreaminess. But it is the entrance place to all all sorts of places where things do happen. Other worlds. I was fascinated by this too, that Lewis sort of anticipated modern physics in that way, this mm-hmm. this, this exactly. multiple reality thing yeah, that's going exactly on. Yeah, exactly right. And... Um, but the wood between the worlds has always represented to me agnosticism. Mm-hmm. Right? And the, that's where you were. Correct. At one time. Um, so when I graduated follow, from Bible college, right, I, I the considered myself atheist. an agnostic because I didn't, I, I was no longer able to believe in God. But I didn't want to take the plunge into the pool and believe in atheism. Right. And that didn't happen to or me until graduate school. Or the Christianity pool either. Right. Yeah, I'd already yeah. pulled myself out of that pool. Right, exactly. And so I stood between the worlds. Mm-hmm. Um, and so the wood between the worlds represents for me most clearly that that sort of middle ground between right. theism and atheism. Mm-hmm. And then they do take the plunge into um the 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 one pool and they end up in the world of charn right and charn is a dying world um and they end up in the courtyard of a palace and then they decide to explore there's nobody around you know it's clearly empty and the sun looks clearly like it's dying the light is awful right red And, and so they come in they they go into the palace and they end up in the hall of images do you want me to read? Yeah, that, that would part? be great. Do you yep, enjoy? That sort of okay. orients us to what's going on. Okay. So they end up in the Hall of Images and they're they're looking around and what they this is what they see. For a second they thought the room was full of people, hundreds of people all seated and all perfectly still. Polly and Diggory, as you may guess, stood perfectly still themselves for a good long time looking in. But presently they decided that what they were looking at could not be real people. There was not a movement nor the sound of a breath among them all. They were like the most wonderful waxwork you ever saw. This time, Polly took the lead. There was something in this room which interested her more than it interested Diggory. All the figures were wearing magnificent clothes. <laughs> and, and you always giggle because... <laughs> this is, you know, because, our culture tries to deny the differences between men and women, but yeah. it's, it's, it's very real. <laughs> uh-huh, yeah, especially in our marriage. <laughs> <laughs> yes, that's true. <laughs> um, I'm very concerned about clothing. 
Yeah, and I couldn't care less. <laughs> <laughs> if you were interested in clothes at all, you could hardly help going in to see them closer, and the blaze of their colors made this room look not exactly cheerful, but at any rate rich and majestic after all the dust and emptiness of the others. It had more windows, too, and was and a good deal lighter. I can hardly describe the clothes. The figures were all robed and had crowns on their heads. Their robes were of crimson and silvery gray and deep purple and vivid green, and there were patterns and pictures of flowers and strange beasts in needlework all over them. Precious stones of astonishing size and brightness stared from their crowns and hung in chains round their necks and peeped out from all the places where anything was fastened. Why haven't these clothes all rotted away long ago? asked Polly. Magic, whispered Diggory. Can't you feel it? I bet this whole room is just stiff with enchantments. I could feel it the moment we came in. So it's it's almost like a time-preserved richness of like the structure of society. Yeah, and this sort of highlights what I think is really important in understanding C.S. Lewis's vision of what magic is, a, is yeah, about. Yeah, yeah. Because there's two kinds of magic. Mm-hmm. There's the magic that people practice, that magicians practice, that the white witch in the, the, the Lion, the Witch, in the Wardrobe, who is the queen that we're about to meet, um, and Uncle Andrew practice. Mm-hmm. Um, that sort of magic seems to always want to bend the rules of reality in order to achieve the results that they want. So it's, it's almost like that magic is ends justify the means, and the other magic is the magic established by the emperor. That is God in, in Narnia and the, and the worlds of uh, uh, all, all created worlds. Right. And God puts that magic into the reality of the world. He sets the boundaries in which we're supposed to live, right. um, in which we live, move, and have our being. And that magic is the deep magic right. because it's God's creation. It's uh, the, the true magician. And the other magicians are false magicians. Yeah. Lewis said, Uncle Andrew, you see, was working with things he didn't really understand. Oh, yes. That's a fantastic and point. It, and most magicians are. And Right. And most magicians are. So we have to understand that as human beings, we are fundamentally, fundamentally. ignorant. Right. And that's what Socrates' point has always been. This has been a theme throughout the Christian atheist. Mm-hmm. And when we think we know things, we're acting the part of the magician. Right. We believe that we know more than we do, and then we act on that. And because we don't understand the deep magic, the, the reality that underlies everything is far more complex than our limited understanding can grasp. And so all sorts of bad things happen because right. we think we understand what we don't. Progressively happen as in the next, the next section. Right. It all as plays they're out. they're going down the hall and mm-hmm. they're seeing... The people changing. Yes, and even as as Diggory gets to the to the to the ringing of the bell, as that right, comes up too. Exactly. Yep. But Diggory was more interested. Now here's here is what Diggory's interested in. Right. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> here's the distinction between the boy and the girl. But Diggory was more interested in the faces, and indeed these were well worth looking at. The people sat in their stone chairs on each side of the room, and the floor was left free down the middle. You could walk down and look at the faces in turn. They were nice people, I think, said Diggory. Polly nodded. All the faces he could see were certainly nice. Both the men and the women looked kind and wise, and they seemed to come of a handsome race. But after the children had gone a few steps down the room, they came to faces that looked a little different. These were very solemn faces. 
You felt you would have to mind your P's and Q's if you ever met living people who looked like that. When they had gone a little further, they found themselves among faces they didn't like. This was about the middle of the room. The faces here looked very strong and proud and happy, but they looked cruel. Right. Yeah. That's an important point. Yeah, exactly. We see the logic developing, right? Um, people are nice at first. The sort of traditional um, world in which people are all relating well with one mm -hmm. another. But as the, as the culture tends to grow, and Plato right. makes this point in Republic Book 8, Right. It follows the logic of degradation, and mm -hmm. you go farther and farther down, and you find that people, even though they're pursuing they're more happy. of what they think they right. want, they're becoming like more in, and more cruel. In, in a happy. They're becoming happier in in one way mm -hmm. because they're getting the things that they want, but they're also becoming more cruel because they're sacrificing the the structures of reality right. in order to achieve those right. things. A little further on, they looked crueler. Further on again. They were still cruel, but they no longer looked happy. They were even despairing faces, as if the people they belonged to had done dreadful things and also suffered dreadful things. The last figure of all was the most interesting, a woman even more richly dressed than the others, very tall, but every figure in that room was taller than the people of our world, with a look of such fierceness and pride that it took your breath away. Yet she was beautiful, too. Years afterward, when he was an old man, Diggory said he had never in all his life known a woman so beautiful. It is only fair to add that Polly always said she couldn't see anything especially beautiful about her. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> so, yeah, the, the man sees the beauty and the woman, I guess, is what? Jealous? Is that the idea? Or sees the is reality. That, or see, she sees the reality? Yeah. Hmm. Of what she is on the inside. Oh, that's possible too. Yeah, yeah. Right? Because you Certainly had mentioned, Polly's quicker to see it than Diggory yeah. was. You had mentioned before that the woman kind of represents the this this feminist, this this new changeover to the feminist. Yeah, that Jadis does. Yeah. yeah. I think and so. So Polly Polly, who seems to be more traditional womanhood. Right. Would see the ugliness in right, that. Right, would see the ugliness in that. Right. And we see that later on with her, with Diggory's aunt, too. Right. And, and the only difference, I guess, in what they see is that Diggory just sees the outer appearance. And uh, Polly tends to, to look at the face and recognize the 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 psyche behind it, right. perhaps. Right, as a yeah. woman. As, as a, a woman. As Which, a future woman. Boy, is that true. I <laughs> mean, know. when we walk into a room, you read everybody... <laughs> Like a book, and for me, it's it's not that I'm all I'm probably better at that than most people, but compared to you, I'm a novice. Yeah, you're really good at that. <laughs> okay, this woman, as I said, was the last, but there were plenty of empty chairs beyond her, as if the room had been intended for a much larger collection of images. Yes, and anything? yeah, Jadis, as as we were saying, sort of seems to represent. The masculinization of women. If you remember back in our childhood, when when I was growing up in school, the the women's movement at that point was like trying to be men. Right. I mean, that was like the goal. Right. They they wanted to erase the difference between the sexes right. and become men. Right. Yeah. Growing up, being told, you know, you can run like a boy, you can throw like a boy, you can you can do everything like a boy, and it's like with like Elizabeth Elliot, let me be a woman. Right. Why can't I be a woman? Right. What's wrong with being a woman? <laughs> it's. It, I mean, this plays into that magic thing. Mm -hmm. It's like we refuse to accept the boundaries that are given to us. Right. I, women are 
wonderful. <laughs> and so are men. And why do we have to be exactly alike? Or, exactly. or why do we have to, uh, I mean, the whole idea of complementarity is having both sexes come together yeah. and be richer together. In it, their individual ways. In their individual, well, right? yeah. Because their characteristics. I, I mean, I am lost without mm -hmm. you. I need I you in that's everything in my life. Yeah, that's how And I you feel. make everything about me better. Exactly. You compliment me right. in such a way that, that I'm a whole person. Right. Yeah, I, I agree with you. Um, it says, this woman, as I said, was the last. This woman was the last. Right. You know, this feminine, this male feminine. Yes. Fe male this femininity. This fierce woman. This fierce woman, male femininity. Right. You know? And then he says, there were plenty of empty chairs beyond her, as if the room had been intended for a lo much larger collection of images. Right. And it was like they were all brought under the power of this one woman. There was supposed to be a larger collection of images. Yeah. But they were, you know, different images, different differences. But they were all brought under this one, you know, this one woman. Right. And so it's like he brings you to that point and he says, so, you know, there are empty chairs beyond us right now. What are you going to fill those empty chairs with? Oh, yeah. It's good. almost like. There's hope in, I always felt there was hope in this, in this part, like, you know. Or an aborted hope. Yeah. 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 Because, uh, because it should have been up hope. Exactly. That's what but ended she up she cut happening. it off. She, yeah. It stopped there. Aborted. That's exactly. Really, that's very good. Yeah. Yeah. With what's going on today. Yeah. But, yeah. And then you see beyond her that there, there was, there was more. There was more and and you determined what it, what it could have been. Okay, so then they come to a bell on a pedestal, and the pedestal has a message on. Right. And the message says, make your choice, adventurous stranger. Strike the bell and bide the danger. Or wonder till it drives you mad what would have followed if you had. Right. So there's two things there. One is that if you strike this bell, you're going to face danger. If you don't strike the bell, you're going to go crazy wondering what would have happened if you did right yeah so i i i mean i guess there's various ways of interpreting that yeah. it seems to me that lewis is making the point that when we refuse to accept the boundaries that are given to us and we reach out beyond them this isn't mm -hmm. like scientific reaching this is magical reaching mm -hmm. for something that is that that should be outside our our grasp or outside our ken then we're getting ourselves into the possibility of trouble right. So breaking down all these barriers, um, trying to change what has traditionally worked is like ringing the bell. We don't know what would have happened if we didn't tear down all the traditional structures, but there's danger in doing that. There's, and that's there's what we're, great danger. Yeah, and that's what we're facing yes. now. So, and we don't buy the danger very We don't. That, that's the problem. Yeah. The problem with the left isn't so much that they're willing to transgress boundaries. It's that they're willing to do it without being careful, without being deliberate, without thinking about right. the consequences of what they do. I, I think I need to restate that. Yeah. Um, the problem with the left is that they think they can transgress boundaries mm -hmm. and know what the results will be. Right. But like magicians... They are fundamentally ignorant of the complexity mm -hmm. they're dealing with. Exactly. And the law of, 
The law of unintended consequences can destroy even the best intention right. efforts. Um, that that quote that you read mm-hmm. back in chapter three is relevant here. And I, mm-hmm. I have it here in front of me. Yeah. Uncle Andrew, you see, was working with things he did not really understand. Mm-hmm. Most magicians are. Exactly. Mm-hmm. And that's what ends up happening. Um, Diggory rings the bell and he awakens the witch. Yes, the law of unintended consequences. The queen. Yes. Mm-hmm. Exactly. And then suddenly the world starts to fall to pieces. Yep. And they have to escape. And the queen is leading them through the hall. The palace comes down around their, starts to come right. down around their ears. Yes. Exactly. And this is a good part to read, actually. Um, the queen led them out of the hall of images into a long corridor and then through a whole maze of halls and stairs and courtyards. Again and again, they heard parts of the great palace collapsing, sometimes quite close to them. Once a huge arch came thundering down only a moment after they had passed through it. The queen was walking quickly. The children had to trot to keep up with her, but she showed no sign of fear. Diggory thought, She's wonderfully brave and strong. She's what I call a queen. I do hope she's going to tell us the story of this place. And so, of course, this is the traditions collapsing. Yeah. All around them, the society is collapsing as a result of the use of magic that we'll talk about next time. Yeah. Yeah. In the next chapter. Yeah. And then then you said how bravado never doubts. Yes. And exactly. Bravado never doubts. And that's that's the that's whole magician's thing. They they have such confidence that mm-hmm. they are right, right, that they have that they have a handle on everything. Right. That they are willing to do anything right. to achieve their ends. But her walking brave and strong. Yes. And, and he's so impressed by her bravado. Right. And Diggory is seduced by this. Right. Not least because she's beautiful. Right. Exactly. <laughs> Polly knows a little better. She did tell them certain things as they went along. That is the door to the dungeons, she would say, or that passage leads to the principal torture chambers, or or this was the old banqueting hall where my great-grandfather bade 700 nobles to a feast and killed them all before they had drunk their fill. They had had rebellious thoughts. Yes, rebellious thoughts. Mm-hmm. Remember 1984, they want to control your thoughts as well as your actions. Right. And that's where the the cancel culture has taken us. Right. We are not even allowed to think things that transgress the boundaries they've put in place. Right. Right. They came at last into a hall larger and loftier than any they had yet seen. From its size and from the great doors at the far end, Diggory thought that now at least they must be coming to the main entrance. In this he was quite right. The doors were dead black either ebony or some black metal, which is not found in our world. They were fastened with great bars, most of them too high to reach and all too heavy to lift. He wondered how they would get out. Bars too high to reach and too heavy to lift. Right. Tradition. Right. Mm -hmm. Traditions. And boy, that's, I mean, the march, the long march through the traditions that the left have been trying to do, they recognized in the mid 20th century that if they're going to win the battle, they have to undertake the long slog right. in tearing down all of the traditions that hold society up. Otherwise, they're not going to get their revolution. But it doesn't take the queen much. No, the queen, the yeah. queen is blows through it with magic. But of right. course, it's already been undermined. Right, she's exactly. Already, 
used the magic that destroyed the whole world. Right. The queen let go of his hand and raised her arm. She drew herself up to her full height and stood rigid. Then she said something which they couldn't understand, but it sounded horrid, and made an action as if she were throwing something towards the doors. And those high and heavy doors trembled for a second as if they were made of silk, and then crumbled away till there was nothing left of them but a heap of dust on the threshold. Yeah. So much more light than they had yet seen in that country was pouring in through the now empty doorway. And when the queen led them out through it, they were not surprised to find themselves in, in the open air. The wind that blew in their faces was cold yet somehow stale. Low down and near the horizon hung a great red sun, far bigger than our sun. Diggory felt at once that it was also older than ours, a sun near the end of its life, weary of looking down upon that world. And on the earth, in every direction, as far as the eye could reach, there spread a vast city in which there was no living thing to be seen. And all the temples, towers, palaces, pyramids, and bridges cast long, disastrous-looking shadows in the light of that withered sun. Once a great river had flowed through the city, but the water had long since vanished, and it was now only a wide ditch of gray dust. Okay, let me stop you there. Mm -hmm. um, as This is the perfect place yeah. to bring up the point you made to me earlier about um, the light, the sun yeah. of this world. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, the light, it's like streaming in. And normally we think of light as symbolizing knowledge, but um, but the light in Charn, I mean, it is a form of knowledge. Yes, for sure. Yeah. But um, this knowledge is dead knowledge, or maybe better, knowledge that produces death. Right. All the elements of society are present here, mm -hmm. temples, palaces, etc. But the water life itself yeah the river running through the city has been dried up this city with all its structure all its sort of human infrastructure mm -hmm. even this knowledge does not sustain life life yeah it destroys it right i find it interesting that the temples were still there mm -hmm. it's like the society is not devoid of religious instinct right. and no society ever is that we've right. ever found Yes, um, exactly. And so, like the left today, they have their own religious impulses. Mm -hmm. And the orthodoxy is as rigid as any you'll find anywhere. Mm -hmm. um, and I say that as a member of the academic world, because the orthodoxy in academia is far more rigid than anything I've ever found in any church I've gone to. <laughs> That's right. I remember that was something that that really struck you. With what? The orthodoxy in academia. Oh, yeah. Yep. Yeah. You thought you were going to escape that when you got into academia and you found that it was even Even stronger. more orthodox by far than most yeah. of the, the orthodox Christian communities I've ever experienced. Right, right. Okay, and then we get to the deplorable word. Right. This is when the queen starts to tell the kid, the children about what happened right. and why, why the world... Why the world is dead yeah. all around them. Right. And she... You want to explain? She makes it clear that there was a battle raging um, between two forces: the force of her sister, and and the forces of Jadis were in conflict for the possession of the crown mm -hmm. to to run the world. Right. She tried everything in her power to 
to defeat her sister. Right. And, and it came down to... And they swore that they would never, that neither side would use magic. Mm-hmm. Um, but apparently Jadis's sister did. She violated it. And therefore Jadis was felt justified in using magic back. And she knew the greatest of all magic, the deplorable word. Right. And by the deplorable word, she could destroy everything except mm-hmm. herself. Mm-hmm. And Jadis's sister assumed that she would never use that. Right. Because if you do that, you've got nothing to rule. Mm-hmm. And so why would you do that? Well, remember we had a discussion yeah, about we had a that. Discussion we tried about to, that. we thought about it. What is the deplorable word? And I, I think the best I could come up with when mm-hmm. you asked me that, and it really threw me for a loop right. at first, was the biblical claim that God said to Moses, I am, that Jesus mm-hmm. echoed in the New Testament when he said, before Abraham was, I am. Right. It's that, it's that claim to Godhead to be the highest value. And in making that claim, you destroy the value of everything underneath you, and you're willing to sacrifice everything to the highest value, which is what religion is all about. And so you become the god of your own religion, and Jadis, in doing so, destroyed everything of value except herself, because she put herself at the highest value. Right. And that was the best I could come up with. I, I don't know. Right. What do you think? <laughs> yeah, well, I tried to look up deplorable, um, deserving strong condemnation. I, I think I think like, Lewis chose that because it's, yeah. it's like it was a way of saying it's not, like the worst thing the you word, could possibly Right, that's do. what I'm thinking. Yeah. Shockingly bad. Mm-hmm. Do you know what I'm saying? It's so shockingly bad that even right. it's like her sister couldn't believe she actually right. would be willing to do that. And that's what I mean. But yeah, yeah it's, it's 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 not that the word is deplorable, it's the use of the word yeah. is deplorable. Yeah, of raising oneself mm-hmm. to the to the status of God, which was what Satan did, right? And is what we do when we whenever we we engage in some sort of idolatrous practice, right? And you said about how when she used a deplorable word, everything was annihilated, everything, right? Right. And the children, I think it's Polly. She asked, "But what about all the people?" Yeah, and remember, yeah, and and, and the she, interesting. Response was exactly that of Uncle Andrew, puzzlement. Right. Like what, what, what people? What? Why? Why would you ask me about them? But that's what she she right. says. She goes, "What? What people? What people?" <laughs> do, I mean, do you have the actual words that she said yep. there? She just she says, "What people?" And then and then um then Polly says, "All the ordinary people who never done you any harm." Right. And she pretty much just echoes the point. They're here for me. Right. They serve they me. They were here for me. And therefore, I can do with them as I will. Right. Exactly as Uncle Andrew said. And that's, that's the status of the magician. That's the ethics of the magician. Right. And that is the ethics of the left. And I have to be careful. I, I always say the left. I don't have a problem with mm-hmm. the liberal temperament. Right. I do have a problem with the liberal ideology that has been in effect for the last 150 years, Mm -hmm. which has adopted whole cloth, the ends justify the means ethics. Right. So then we go to chapter six, where Jadis regains her strength in our world. The children touch their green rings. Right. And because Jadis was touching them, she gets pulled into the wood between the world. Right. Where she becomes 
weak and weak unable and to function or think correctly. Yes. Right. Because she can Pale. never she can never live in peace. Right. Her soul is tumultuous. It mm -hmm. is chaos. Right. And she represents that chaos. Yes. So that weakened her. And then when the children go back into our world, Jadis is touching them. Right. And she gets drawn into our world. And that's where she regains strength. Correct. She becomes even bigger than she was before, it seems like. Right. And um, kind of reminds me of the rise of feminism in mm -hmm. our world, the wokeness, the spirit of our age. Yes, the spirit of the age. Yeah. Hegelian. Yeah, yeah. The way <laughs> they describe her in this part. Yes. Um, bigger than reality. Exactly. It says that there was no doubt that the witch had got over her faintness, and now that one saw her in our, our own world with ordinary things around her, she fairly took one's breath away. In Charn, she had been alarming enough. In London, she was terrifying. For one thing, they had not realized till now how very big she was. Hardly human, was what Diggory thought when he looked at her, and he may have been right. For some say there is giantish blood in the royal family of Charn. But even her height was nothing compared with her beauty, her fierceness, and her wildness. She looked ten times more alive than most of the people one meets in London. Uncle Andrew was bowing and rubbing his hands and looking. And yet, as Polly said afterwards, there was a sort of likeness between her face and his. Something in the expression. It was the look that all wicked magicians have, the mark, which Jadis had said she could not find in Diggory's face. Right. So Diggory was a child of tradition. Mm -hmm. But in Uncle Andrew, the progressive, she found the mark clearly. One good thing about seeing the two together was that you would never again be afraid of Uncle Andrew any more than you'd be afraid of a worm after you had met a rattlesnake or afraid of a cow after you met a mad bull. Mm. And this actually goes to the notion of, of the useful idiots. I was just going to say that. <laughs> the ends justify the means. Yeah, because climbing it, upon the, most, most the of the leftists idiots. that we meet in every our everyday mm -hmm. life are decent people. Right. They have so much of the traditional mixed in Right. That they're still good people. They they buy the stuff, right? And they sort of follow the trajectory, and they vote for people who are pushing us in the wrong direction. But they're generally good people. They've right. just gotten caught up in an ideology that is destroying them and destroying right. our world. Right. And it's like exactly. Uncle Andrew had no idea that mm. he was meddling with things that were so far beyond right. him. And and that's what so much of our world has become. It is like what two or three percent of our population that is driving the ship into the shoals right exactly. now. Exactly. Exactly. So then um we get to chapter seven where we're at the doorway. Um and what happened at the doorway. The witch talks to Uncle Andrew and and then she decides she's gonna go off into the into London you know, take over the world. <laughs> she thinks this is going to be the world she's going to take over. Right. And this is where I said about the feminism. Um, Aunt Letty, who's the, who kind of represents traditional womanhood. Yep. You know, she cares for a degrees mother. She cares for the house. Right. She's like your traditional grandmotherly. She puts up with Uncle Andrew. Yeah, she puts up with <laughs> Uncle Andrew. She, um, she tries to stand up to Jadis. She calls her a hussy yeah. and tells her to get out of her yeah, house that's, yeah, or something yeah. like that. That's yeah, funny, yeah. <laughs> and um, then she's, um, Jadis rises up and throws Letty across the room. Fortunately, Letty lands on a mattress, you know, doesn't get too hurt. But it's funny because Letty gets right up, 
and goes, Jade just leaves the house and Letty gets right up, goes right back to her feminine duties. Right. Goes right back up to Diggory's mom, takes care, you know, is caring and yep. and takes care of everything. Make sure the house is in order. Right. You know, make sure everything's in order. And in meanwhile, Jadis goes out and she meets the men of, of, of London. London. Yes. And you have you have men that are agree. Some are agreeable. Um, all of them are unable to stand up against her power. Yep. Um, they're obliging to right. a certain extent, except for one. And that is the cabbie. Right. And how does he? She he tells her. She's wait. She's standing there with all her power <laughs> and magnificence. Yes. And and bossing everybody around and 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 hitting people and taking over and and she um he looks up at her and he he says something like now Missy you should you don't want to be here amongst all these ruffians you'd yeah. like to go home and have a cup of tea and rest <laughs> and find peace exactly and so he is the he is the country gentleman and literally we find yeah. out that that he has come from the country right. to be a cabbie in london right but london isn't his natural place he's much more of a traditional person he's 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 he has his roots deep in the traditional culture mm-hmm. and the traditional mores and morals and he is a a man of traditional of, con- of tradition. Yeah, he's a traditional man. <laughs> and his wife. And his yeah, we meet his wife later. Later, yes. and she's of the traditional uh, right kind. of the traditional traditional yeah. kind. Yeah. And Jadis represents sort of the the progressive womanhood. Right. And she dominates all the other men around him, mm-hmm. and she doesn't even phase him. Right. <laughs> right. Because he just he assumes. That she's a woman. It's right. kind of it's right. kind of like when I open a door for a feminist and they right. get offended. Right. He, <laughs> the worst thing he can do. He does the ultimate thing is says, I want you to be a woman. Yeah. Do you know what I'm saying? Yeah. Let me be a woman. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah, like you said with Elizabeth Elliot. Though. Right. Which yeah. is one of the greatest honors. Yeah. Is to allow a woman to be a woman, allow a man to be a man. Yes. <laughs> so um, eventually Jadis goes and gets pulled in back into the wood between the world by Diggory and Polly. They reach up and they talk, they touch her in the midst of all of this chaos. And she gets pulled back into the wood between the world with Uncle Andrew. And then she ends up, all of them end up in Narnia. Yes. From the wood between the world, they go into another pool. Which, well, what will become Narnia yeah, because it's just being created. Yeah. Right. And there's... Aslan, and he's singing the world into existence. Which is fascinating, right? Right. Um, singing the world into existence. He's, he is the eternal word, mm-hmm. as John calls Jesus. Right. Um, and the, the reason that exists before creation, um, before everything else, and he sings the world into existence. And that is um, a beautiful metaphor, I mm-hmm. think. Okay, so I guess we'll call it quits for this week. Um, here at No Compromise. Hopefully you'll tune in next week when we try to complete this. I am a Christian with the searching and skeptical mind of an atheist. I don't want to believe anything that isn't true. I know both sides of the looking glass and I know them with open eyes. I choose Christ's side. I invite you to join me from wherever you stand before the looking glass. That's this week's episode. Thanks for listening. 
And remember, you can have your religious cake and eat it too. You can have reason, respect for science, a 21st century worldview, and be a Christian.